God. Well, it's good to be in church. If you have your Bibles, grab them, get them close. We're going to get into the word of the Lord. And thank you for standing and worshiping. Already a good spirit of worship. Uh, you can be seated. Uh, we're going to look at, uh, well, we're going to do our very, very best, I should say, uh, to look at an, an entire chapter in the book of Romans. And the Lord has been dealing with me about this. The challenge for me is to take this a huge pile of very important information from the Word of God and try to condense it down uh, into an amount of time. I've got to cram it into the short space of time that we have. And I've got to try to do it uh, before you start plotting to blow up the sound system and kick me off the stage. So uh, that's, that's kind of how this works. Here's the thing. We just got back in from vacation last night, and uh, I can tell that I had a whole week of vacation because I have 17 pages of notes here. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But here's the good news for you. On Sunday mornings, we only have 45 minutes. So no matter what happens, no matter where I am in the 17 pages, when it's closing time, we've got to wrap it up. So take, take heart. And be of good cheer. It's going to be all right. Uh, don't worry. Uh, I do want to thank everyone for uh, holding down the fort while, while we were gone. In fact, late last night, I was able to listen to uh, Brother Kenneth Pope's lesson from Wednesday night. Tremendous lesson. And I want to thank him uh, for teaching the word of the Lord and doing it so capably and ably. Uh, I appreciate my elder and love him very much. And to all our elders, I give honor to our elders today. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And we're going to be talking about serving God in the newness of the Spirit. Serving God in the newness of the of the Spirit. Everyone said the Spirit. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about in this chapter. It's an important chapter. Uh, I hope that you won't yawn your way through it. I hope that you'll stay with me. We're going to get more technical than I usually do, and we're going to just dig right into the chapter. We're going to be very exegetical today. We're going to just try to plow through uh, the verses, but first I'm going to give you a little a little setup here, but just kind of mark your Bible, have yourself turn to Romans 7, and we'll look at each verse in just a moment here. But first, you need to understand that Romans chapter 6 and 7, the chapter we're about to look at, and chapter 8, all three of those chapters answer the questions of how to be delivered from sin. How many think that's a good thing? How to be delivered from sin, and how to live a balanced life under grace. Everyone said grace. And we're also going to look at the reality that grace is not a license to sin. Grace gives us liberty from sin. And Paul also discusses the important question of how to live a victorious Christian life through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And let me just say that you can live a victorious Christian life through the power of the Spirit. You can't do it through your power. You can't do it through your strength. But the Holy Spirit will empower you to live a victorious Christian life. And if you're not, that doesn't mean you are perfect. It doesn't mean that you have everything that you want in life. But it does mean that you can have victory over the bondage of sin in your life. If you can't uh, find victory over sin, then you have a spirit problem. You don't have the Holy Spirit operating in your life the way uh, that it should be. And Romans chapter 6 deals with the relationship between sanctification. Everyone shout sanctification and sin. And here in chapter 7, Paul deals with the relationship between sanctification and the Old Testament Levitical law or what it means to serve God in the newness of the spirit. Now, if you have your Bibles, you could go with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse number 15. Romans chapter 6 and verse number 15. And this is just kind of introducing us to chapter 7. Paul asks a rhetorical question, and if you read uh, the epistles of Paul very often, you'll realize that Paul likes to use rhetorical questions. It's a teaching method uh, that he used uh, quite a bit. And so he asks a question. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And then he answers his own question and he says, God forbid. Look at your neighbor and say, no. No, we're not to sin because we're freed from the law and under grace. God forbid. That's that's not at all what God intends. And I want you to keep in mind that in chapter 7, Paul is still answering this question. Paul is still dealing with this verse. And like most preachers, <laughs> he's tackling the same question from a bunch of different directions. Do you ever notice that we preachers do that? We, uh, we're answering the same question, but we kind of approach it from different angles and the reason we do that is because we know that people are slippery. If you don't come at it from every angle, someone's going to find a way to wiggle their way out of it. And so uh, what Paul is doing is he just keeps coming back to this question. He just keeps kind of hitting it from a different direction because he knows that someone's going to try to abuse this teaching. And you need to understand that Paul had been building this message brick by brick, piece by piece, for five chapters. He spent five entire chapters building up to asking this question, and then he spends two, roughly two chapters uh, answering the question. And he danced all around this one statement, and then he dropped it. He drops it like a bomb. He says, for ye are not under the law. Everyone said, we're not under the law. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats. Uh, we don't have to burn incense, not literal incense in the temple. But we're under grace. Everyone said grace. And this was a very controversial thing for Paul to say. And he knew that it was going to be hard for the Jewish people to accept this. And even worse, he knew that some people would try to misuse grace to justify their sin, just like they do today, by the way. 
Doesn't that sound like American Christianity today? We are abusing grace and we are using it as a justification for living a life of sin. So Paul sets the whole stage and says we're not under the law. And he sets that aside until chapter 7. And then he hits it head on using marriage as an example. Everyone said marriage. Now I've broken this chapter down into three sections. And the first section is going to come up behind me on the screen here. And it's the first six verses of chapter 7. And this is Paul uh, using a marriage analogy. And uh, we'll look at verse 1. And I'll read that for you, and then I'll ask all of us to read verse 2. Verse 1 says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. So we know his audience here. He's speaking to uh, people who are uh, Jewish. How that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Let's read verse 2 together. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Now, when he says that uh, the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband, Americans immediately think of, of the law in terms of uh, you get a certificate from the state uh, after you're married and then the preacher signs it or maybe a judge signs it. And it's a legal document from the state. And so we're legally married in the eyes of the government. Let me just pause. Paul's not really trying to deal in depth here with uh, uh, necessarily marriage in terms of the physical. He's using it as analogy for the spiritual. But I will say this, that marriage is a holy bond that is sacred before God. Uh, we, we recognize the laws of our state. We recognize the laws of our country as long as they don't go against the law of God. The moment the laws of a country violate the laws of God, a Christian has to live according to a higher law. Amen? Because our kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus addressed this several times, and he Talked about giving to Caesar what's Caesar's and giving to God what is God's. And, and he talked about trying to obey civil authority uh, when and where we can. And we absolutely should do that. We should obey the speed limit. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Although probably everybody here is guilty of breaking that law. At, and I may have just broke it last night. So, Lord, I'm sorry. Uh, forgive me. But the point that I'm trying to make is that. Christians should never view marriage as a legal contract between a man and a woman and the, the government because the government really has nothing to do with your vows before God. Your marriage vows are sacred, not civil. Your marriage vows are a promise that you made to another individual to love and to cherish until death do we part. And you made those vows before God. You made them to God and to that individual. And so the moment you start viewing marriage as just a legal thing that you can kind of get a good lawyer and slip out of, then you are violating the word of God. 
you're violating the law of God. And so when you look at the scripture and it says bound by the law, your American mind immediately thinks of that of the law as being that piece of paper that you get from the state of Georgia or wherever you're married. But that's not at all what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about the law of God, Old Testament law that defines marriage as being between a man and between a woman and being for a lifetime. And so this is God's law that he's referring to, not man's law. So man can change laws about marriage. Governments can define marriage in any way that they want to, and they will redefine it over and over. If you think that the world is done redefining what marriage is, you're sadly mistaken. This, this world is not done redefining what marriage is. In fact, they're trying to redefine what gender is right now. Our world isn't even sure what gender means anymore. And they call Christians the science deniers. They don't even understand basic biology, the creation that God uh, put into this world. And so governments might change laws, but the law of God is that marriage is for a lifetime between a man and woman. So verse 3, and that was just kind of on the side for you. That was all free. Verse 3, so then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. So here Paul is using marriage as a sermon illustration. So to be under the law is to be dominated by sin. But to be under grace is to be liberated not just from the law, but it's to be liberated from the dominion of sin. When we are free from the law under the Old Testament covenant, we are also free from the dominion of sin. Nothing in the Old Testament covenant, nothing in the Old Covenant freed people from the bondage of sin. All it did was cover them temporarily, but it didn't empower them in any way. But in the New Testament covenant, we're freed from the law and we are empowered by the Spirit of God. That's something that ought to excite you a little bit. You ought to feel a little Holy Ghost electricity in the building this morning when you start thinking about how the empowering of the Spirit frees you from, from the grip of sin. Now listen, there's nothing here that Paul is saying uh, that excuses sin. And nowhere does the book of Romans teach that by being under grace, everyone said under grace, that we're freed from the consequences of sin if, if we continue to live bound by sin. So you can't say, well, I'm under grace and I'm still sinning, and so I'm freed from the consequences of sin. I know people say that every day, but it's contrary to everything the Bible teaches. You can't live bound by sin and be a servant of God at the same time. You're either a servant to sin or you're a servant of the Lord. And I choose to be a servant of the Lord today. How about you? Amen. So Paul points out that marriage is a lifelong relationship. Everyone said lifelong. A wife is bound to her husband for as long as she lives and vice versa, by the way. He's not trying to insinuate that men aren't bound by the same thing. They absolutely are and were. And now if the woman leaves him for another man, she's branded as an adulteress. But if, on the other hand, he dies, she's free to marry someone else without any shame or stigma attached. So death breaks the marriage bond. 
And by the same token, death breaks the bond of the Old Testament Levitical law. Let's break this down as simply as we can because I see some of you glazing over here. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were symbolically married to the law. So Paul was saying to the church at Rome, your first marriage, your first covenant was to the law. Now, in the next several verses, he's trying to convince them that when they abandon Levitical law, they aren't being unfaithful or doing something shameful. They're getting remarried with dignity and honor because a death in the marriage has released them from their vows. Is everybody still with me? Is everybody awake? And so this isn't adultery. This isn't uh, shaming God. And this would have been hard for people who had lived their entire adult life bound by the Old Testament law. It's hard for Western modern Christians to understand how difficult it would have been for a lifelong practicing Jew to abandon the Old Testament law and to leave behind the sacraments of the a ceremonial law that they had been raised with. This would have been a very, very hard thing, and it would have felt scary. It would have felt uh, wrong in some way or another. They'd held this dear their entire life, and so we need to be more sympathetic to the struggle that they were having in their spirit. Now, let me pause here because a lot of people get confused, and I, I want to clear this up. When we talk about the law and the law that Paul is talking about here We've addressed this many times over the last few years, but even as many times as we've talked about it, I still talk to people who have a lot of confusion in this area. In the Old Testament, the law was broken into three parts, or we can break it into three parts. There was the ceremonial law. Everyone said ceremonial. There was the civil law. Everyone said civil. And there was the moral law. Everyone said moral law. And so the ceremonial law was things that related to uh, the sacrifices and the Levitical priesthood and all of the sacraments that they went through. The civil law re related to Israel being a theocracy. In other words, Israel was self-governing and they, uh, they had their own uh, law that came directly from God that was civil. It had to do with uh, their government and things of that nature. And then the moral law, moral law, say that one more time with me, moral law is timeless, timeless. That means, the, that's why we still, by the way, adhere to, just to use a very simple illustration, we still adhere to the Ten Commandments. In fact, even if you talk to Christians who want to abandon the Old Testament, and that's what most uh, people want to do today. They want to get rid of the Old Testament because there's a lot of moral law in the Old Testament. For example, homosexuality is first addressed in the Old Testament. And a lot of people want to do away with Old Testament moral law because then they can do things that they want to do and they can claim, well, I'm under grace now and I'm not bound by the Old Testament. But moral law is law that is attached to the very nature and character of God. And God's nature, God's character never changes. God was holy in the Old Testament and he's holy in the New Testament. God was righteous in the Old Testament and he's righteous in the New Testament. Amen? And so moral law doesn't change. 
And that's why uh, the New Testament doesn't necessarily uh, come in and uh, relist all of the character of God as it is in the Old Testament. And by the way, people who want to get rid of the, the kind of law that Paul was talking about here, they want to lump everything in the Old Testament in with what Paul is talking about. Paul was clearly talking about the ceremonial and the civil law. Paul was clearly talking about why we don't offer the blood of lambs and goats and things of that nature. But, for example, when you start looking at the definition of marriage, even holiness, everyone said holiness, modesty, modesty is first addressed in the book of Genesis. Tithing is first addressed in the book of Genesis. Any Bible scholars in the house today understand that Genesis is pre-law. Amen? Woo, hallelujah. Some of y'all are starting to wake up just a little bit. And so when you start trying to throw out all the Old Testament, you are, you are way, way, way off base, and you are theologically unsound because the Old Testament has all kinds of timeless moral law. And when you start just trying to throw out everything in the Old Testament, my friend, my friend, you are displeasing God. You're displeasing God. That's not a, at all what Paul was trying to say. Paul is dealing very specifically with ceremonial and civil law. And we don't have time to really dig into that like I'd like to. There's so much confusion about that. I see so many people confused. And, and that's why you'll, if you ever get in a Bible conversation with someone and you start quoting the Old Testament and they'll say, well, that's the Old Testament. Wow. Well, I don't, I don't live under that. I'm New Testament Christian. They might as well burn half their Bible. That's, that's really what a lot of Christians do. They burn half their Bible. And they try to use Paul. They try to go to Romans 7 to justify it. It's exactly what they try to do. And they'll quote Scripture. They misquote Scripture. They misuse Scripture. They misunderstand Scripture. Sometimes they're doing it on purpose. Sometimes they're just doing it out of ignorance. Uh, but in reality, you need the entire Word of God. Hallelujah. I said you need the entire Word of God. So I want to be clear there before we move on. Now let's pick back up with verse 4. Uh, verse 4. Let's read verse 4 together, shall we? Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. Someone shout Jesus. That we should bring forth fruit unto God. Now, I'm going to comment here. Now we're able to bear good fruit. That's what Paul's saying. Now we can have the fruit of the Spirit. And, and we can have a good harvest of godly, righteous fruit. It can come out of our new covenant. It can come out of our new marriage. Our new marriage will produce good fruit in our lives. And uh, verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, before we were saved... The motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So our sinful desires were stirred up by the law, and it produced deadly fruit. Everyone said deadly fruit. Verse 6, but now we are delivered from the law. Okay, I need to pause there because I saw, I saw someone get confused. Everyone said delivered. We're delivered from the law. Now, I was, I was reading this last night, and my brain was whirring, as it sometimes does. It was moving. There's, that little hamster in my mind was going like this. 
And it dawned on me that when, when people hear that word delivered, everyone said delivered, it, it gives you the connotation or the idea that the law was evil. But the law was not evil. The law came from God. There's no such thing as evil that, came, that comes from God. So the law wasn't evil. It wasn't something bad or wicked that they needed to be delivered from. So I was, I was looking at the original word here. And pastor, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Uh, I'll leave that to you. You can do that another time. You do it much, much, much better than me. By the way, do you realize how difficult it is to teach things like this when you have a doctor sitting right next to you? Y'all really should feel sorry for me. It's, it's, a, it's a hard thing to do, but I'm going to struggle through it anyway. That word delivered, and, and it really hit me. And the reason it kind of dawned on me, and I went back and I was looking at the original Greek word is because... Uh, my brother Nathan and his wife are going to have a baby any time now. Isn't that exciting? We're looking forward to, to baby Judah coming. And, uh, and so it, it was dawning on me that Paul is using a word that is originally intended to bring about the idea of, of a birthing process. How many understand that when a, uh, a woman has a child... Oftentimes, we'll say that the baby is being delivered. We go into the what? We go into the delivery room. That doesn't mean something evil was happening in her body, even though uh, if you're nine months pregnant, you might feel like something evil is happening in your body. <laughs> Pastor said to watch out. I'll just calm down there. But actually, something very wonderful is happening. Something very powerful is happening. Something is being birthed. And so Paul is actually using a word that, that brings about the idea that, that we, are, we are birthed into a new covenant. We are born. And by the way, that's why we use words like born again. Amen? So we're born again. By the way, you can't just sign a piece of paper and be a part of the church. You have to be birthed into this thing. You can't just put some cash in a tithing envelope and be a part of the church. You have to be born into this thing. Somebody ought to clap your hands and shout amen. Yes, you do. So that's exactly what Paul is talking about. We are delivered. We are birthed. The, the Old Testament law. That's why Jesus talked about uh, he came to fulfill the law. The, the New Testament covenant is birthed from the Old Testament law. The Old Testament gave birth to something beautiful, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So just like death breaks the bond between a husband and a wife, a believer's death with Christ breaks the bond that chained them to the law, and now we are free to enter a new marriage with Christ. And so we become what? We become the bride of Christ. We enter a new covenant. We enter into a new marriage. And so there's no shame or condemnation in leaving the letter of the ceremonial Levitical Old Testament law when you die to Christ. And by the way, it's important to understand that when he talks about that death, 
He's talking about the death of Jesus, but he's also talking about your death. The gospel is the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And you have to spiritually die. You have to spiritually be buried, and you have to spiritually be born again. Amen. Repentance, water baptism in Jesus' name, speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. Any apostolics awake this morning? Any apostolics know what it means to be alive in Christ Jesus? Any apostolics understand, hallelujah, that you are alive in Christ? Amen. Notice verse 6 says that we should serve. Look at your neighbor and say serve. Look at your neighbor and say that's an action. That's a verb. That means I've got to do something. See, a lot of people think that all you have to do is just kind of whisper a little prayer and say, I'm so sorry, Lord. I love you. And that's all you have to do. And then you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. <laughs> you might as well just rip pages out of your Bible. Just rip them. Just crumple them up and toss them on the floor. That's what you have to do to believe that kind of thing. Absolutely. That is what you have to do. And people do it every single day. But you have to serve. Hallelujah. You have to serve in the newness of the Spirit. Kind of sounds like you need the Holy Ghost, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of sounds like the Holy Ghost will make you serve. Kind of sounds like the Holy Ghost will make you walk right, talk right, live right. That's exactly what it means. You've got to serve. You've got to serve God. You have to become a servant. That's what a minister is. A minister is a servant of the Lord. I was talking to my wife about this uh, driving back from Florida yesterday, and we were, we were discussing what it means to be a, a servant-hearted person. You know, in the world, people try to demand respect through power and authority, but that isn't how Christians ought to be. Now, every human being wants to be respected. Are there any men here that don't want respect? You don't care if anyone respects you. Just raise your hand. You don't care if your wife respects you. You don't care if your kids respect you. You don't care if anyone at work. No, no. Every, everybody, men, women, children, my son wants to be respected. He's seven years old. He talked to me mean, Daddy. My son actually looked at me the other day and said, they weren't very respectful to me. He said, you're seven years old. What do you know about respect? It, it's, it's part of our human condition. We want to be respected. But Christians cannot demand respect the way the world demands respect. Preachers, by the way, deserve to be respected. In fact, the Bible teaches that you ought to give double honor. The ministry ought to be treated with respect. But oftentimes, amen, that'd be a good place to say amen. And the... but. But the reality is this, and I know this as someone who's been in ministry uh, my entire adult life, even my teenage life, I know that the world does not honor ministry. And by the way, much of the church doesn't honor ministry either. They just don't. And, and so, in the flesh, what... What's often tempting to do is to say, well, I'm going to demand. I'm going to fight for respect. 
You know, we hear a lot of, almost every secular song today is about, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get respect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get what's mine. That's what people are singing about, empowerment. I'm going to be empowered. And, and if they don't give it to me, I'm going to take it. That's, that's the worldly mentality of how to be respected. But that isn't what God calls Christians to do. Christians earn respect by serving people. We serve others. We serve God. We serve one another. And so we are humble servants of Christ. And it is God who is exalts. And it is God who brings low. And vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And Christians better stop trying to exact revenge from their persecutors. Christians need to say, I am humble. In the sight of the Lord. And I'm going to have a servant heart. A servant mentality. I'm going to serve. I'm going to serve in the newness of the spirit. And so the old man, the old flesh, you've clawed, you've fought. You, you would struggle for respect. You would, you would put people down. You would bully people. Whatever you had to do, you would, you would just you would force it into your life. Even if you had to manipulate people, whatever you had to do. But the Christian mentality is walking in the newness of the spirit. And the way that you walk in that newness of life is you serve God. And you serve one another. And you humble your heart. And you humble your spirit. Underneath the mighty hand of God. What a powerful thing. What a powerful thing. So we should serve in the newness. Everyone said newness of the spirit. All right, let's go to the next slide. I've only got a couple minutes, um, but I want to just continue into our second section. And so now Paul transitions into the subject of how the law revealed our sins. So before the law came, uh, we had no way to uh, know exactly what God expected of us. Now, God gave us a conscience. Everyone said a conscience. And the conscience still operates today, by the way. Have you ever done something? No one ever told you it was wrong. You never read a scripture that said, thou shalt not do this. But when you did it, you immediately felt guilty. Anybody ever felt that way? Or, or have we just seared our conscience? Now, modern, modern people have watched so much television and so many movies and ingested so much filth in, into their life that many modern people have seared their conscience to where almost nothing makes them feel guilty anymore. Because if you're just watching filth all the time, you sear your conscience to where almost nothing shocks you anymore. You know, as a Christian, you ought to be shocked once in a while. There ought to be something that your spirit just goes... If you're serving God and nothing ever causes that, your spirit to go... I even know unsaved people. I know completely godless, unsaved people who have come to me and said, Brother Ryan, I, I've, I've always thought it was strange how you wouldn't do this and you wouldn't do that and you did do this and you did do that. And then the other day, I went to do something that I've always done and all of a sudden I just felt guilty. Anybody ever felt that way before? And you know what I tell him? I said, that is your conscience. God gave you a conscience. And he's trying to tell you that you should not do that. God is trying to talk to you. God has put a conscience within the heart, within the soul of every living human being on the animals don't have do dogs, don't have conscience, horses don't have conscience, but human beings who are created in the image of God, 
We are given an innate conscience that every once in a while, if, if you will, if you'll let it, it'll try to rein you in. It'll try to tell you that you should or shouldn't do this. And you better pay attention to it. But the law clearly revealed our sin. So we don't just have to rely on our conscience and our emotions and our feelings. The law revealed all that. So in this second section, Paul winds up going back to the subject of our sin nature. Everyone said sin nature. And he realized that it might sound like he'd been saying in all these previous verses that the Old Testament law was sinful which would have been blasphemous, by the way. If Paul would have called the Old Testament law sinful or wicked or evil, he would have been a heretic. He would have been blasphemous, and he knew that. So Paul tries very hard to be perfectly clear about what he's saying, and so he asks another rhetorical question here in verse 7. Here he is asking another question. I'll read it, and I'm going to close with this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he answers his own question immediately so there can be no misunderstanding. And he answers it the same way he answered the question from chapter 6. He said, God forbid. Don't ever think that way. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. And so the law reveals what is sin in our lives. And under the New Testament law, we are now finally empowered to live a life of the Spirit where we can be free from the grip and the shame of the law. How many have the Holy Ghost today? How many are thankful for the Holy Ghost? Praise the Lord. Why don't you lift up both hands and just thank the Lord for, for filling you with His Spirit. God, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you, Lord. I worship you, Jesus. Thank you for your Spirit. Thank you for the newness of life. We give you praise. We give you glory. And everyone said in Jesus' name.